You're listening to CNN Town Halls and Debates, your direct source to the people shaping your world. It's a forum for you to get answers to the tough questions and better understand the issues that matter to you. We're bringing this episode to you uncut and unfiltered, straight from the national stage. And it all starts right here, right now, on CNN. Welcome. I'm Anderson Cooper in New York. And I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta. This is our 17th CNN Global Town Hall, Coronavirus Facts and Fears. It's being seen around the world on CNN International, CNN Espanol, and streaming on CNN.com. It comes at perhaps the most difficult public health moment this country has seen since the 1918 influenza pandemic. According to data from Johns Hopkins University, there were 66,273 new confirmed cases yesterday. Exactly one month ago, writing in the Wall Street Journal that we were, quote, winning the fight against the invisible enemy, Vice President Pence boasted of an average daily case count of 20,000. That was a month ago. Now, a daily count is more than triple that. And Anderson, today in Texas and in Arizona, they started bringing in refrigerated trailers. It's the same as we saw in New York in the spring, because then as now, uh, the morgues are overflowing. Sad thing is, you know, we saw all this coming. We saw all of this the moment the cases started ticking up. We knew what would follow after this. It would be first the hospitals, then it would be the ICUs filling up, then people dying, and now we see too many for the morgues to hold or too many for the funeral rooms to handle. Texas today reported a new high for daily deaths related to COVID-19. 129 people died. A new high in Florida today as well, where 156 more people have died and nearly 14,000 more have tested positive. Just to put it in perspective, here's a look at new cases in the week since our last town hall. The pink line is the European Union, with about 440 million people. The green line is Florida, just Florida, population about 21 million. Four and a half percent of the people, nearly three times more cases. And as this is happening in Florida and Texas and Arizona and California, red states and blue, urban and rural, the president is attacking the nation's top infectious disease expert and pushing schools to reopen, it appears, at any cost. There's still a shortage of PPE. People are still waiting to get tested or being told they can't. Results are taking so long to come back as to be useless for preventing others from being infected. The administration, they're refusing to let members of the task force come on this program and other programs talk about any of this. Perhaps the most consequential accountability moment outside of wartime any of us has seen, there simply is no accountability. Well, thankfully, though, uh, we can still provide you the information you need to keep yourself and the people close to you as safe as possible. We're joined tonight by a former CDC director and also a doctor who oversaw public health for the city of Baltimore and its public school system. Tweet us your questions. We want to hear from you at the hashtag CNN Town Hall. You can also leave a comment on the CNN Facebook page. A lot of you have also sent in video questions, and we're trying to get to the, as many of those tonight as we can. Yeah, we'll also be talking to some people who literally put their health and lives on the line to test a new vaccine. And we'll be checking with our correspondents here and around the world. I want to start with a quick look at where things stand here at home. There are more than three and a half million positive coronavirus cases in the United States. More than 138,000 people have died. 39 states see their cases rising. Only two states are seeing a decline. As we tried to open up, you saw that there was a, a wide variation in how that was done. And pictures and photos and films of people at bars with no uh, mass congregating in crowds, the inevitable happened. Arizona, California, Texas, and Florida remain some of the biggest hotspots in the U.S. Texas saw a record number of deaths this week. Hospitalization rates are also up. Miami-Dade County in Florida has run out of ICU beds. California shut down indoor restaurants and bars again. We are on the border of going to red. Red is when it's everything shuts down again. Everything. There are currently 23 potential vaccines in human trials around the world, including four in the United States. The biotech firm Moderna, which is partnering with the National Institutes of Health, have promising results from their phase one trials and are preparing to move to phase three. The CDC now says 40% of people infected with the virus may be asymptomatic. Those who've recovered may only have immunity from antibodies for a few months, according to researchers in the United Kingdom. Masks and social distancing are still recommended, 
but right now there aren't enough people following these guidelines to stop the virus from spreading. I do think the fall and the winter of 2020 and 2021 are going to be the, probably one of the most difficult times that we've experienced in American public health. Again, the president is at odds with the experts or their agencies in the case of the CDC. We'll talk more about that in the hour ahead because a move the administration made today to marginalize the CDC could have serious implications for the public's access to honest information about the pandemic. First, Sanjay, as we do every week at this point in the program, what, what's your take on where we stand right now? Well, you know, it's been almost six months since the first patient was diagnosed here in the United States, and it's been quite a roller coaster ride. Uh, there's so many countries which have returned to some state of normalcy, but we're not in a position to do that safely here. Uh, we know the president is pushing for students to return to the classroom in just a few weeks, and I gotta tell you, as a dad of three girls, I want that too. But it's also a scary time, as I'm hearing for, from families and teachers all over the country. The evidence still shows kids are less likely to get sick. But the problem is it is still not clear how much they spread the virus. In fact, we reported a study yesterday involving one nine-year-old boy with COVID who exposed 80 classmates. And guess what? None of them contracted the disease. In Germany and Norway, schools have opened up with strict distancing and masks, and overall the cases have remained low. But we also know that when social distancing restrictions are lifted early and then schools open, as they did in Israel, large outbreaks can follow. And that's the concern here. We also know that a quarter of our teachers are vulnerable and are concerned about stepping back into the classroom, some Anderson even using the summer months to update their wills. Um, Dr. Anthony Fauci finally talked to the president, and that's good because Fauci's been on the front line of HIV and SARS and Ebola. And Anderson, I want to show you this picture. Uh, it was tweeted out by a senior investigator at the NIH. That is Dr. Fauci. It's from five years ago. He was suiting up before treating an Ebola patient. According to his colleague, Dr. Fauci wanted to show his staff that he would not ask them to do anything he wouldn't do himself. The investigator tweeted, quote, that's what leadership looks like. Hmm. Quite a picture, Anderson, huh? Yeah, that's extraordinary. Um, uh, Sanjay, we, we, you know, we've touched on this already, but we want to talk more about what's going on in Florida. Randy Kay joins us tonight from West Palm Beach. So, Randy, I mean, it seems all the numbers in Florida are, are, are pretty dire. Yeah, Anderson, they really are. Uh, nearly 14,000 new cases in the last 24 hours. That brings us to a total of about 315,000 cases statewide and more than 4,600 deaths. And here is a stunning statistic. You talked about the European Union, but comparing Florida to the entire U.K., Florida has more cases than the entire United Kingdom, and the population here is about 22 million compared to 66 million for the U.K. In terms of hospitalizations, we're still in trouble here, about 9,100 hospitalized in the state. I just checked that uh, before coming on air, and that's up from about 7,000 over the weekend, so that's a pretty big jump. And the state positivity rate is well above that 10 percent threshold that they're looking for. It's about 18.8 percent. In Miami-Dade, it's even worse, where they're running out of ICU beds. It's about 29 percent positivity. And some of the hospitals there are now having to convert regular rooms to ICU beds. And the uh, infectious disease expert we speak with often said that Miami right now looks like what Wuhan, China did six months ago, Sanjay. Yeah. And, you know, Randy, I mean, we also saw this in New York, right? And, and when New York was seeing new infection rates like Florida has, has, has now seen, um, they went into essentially a lockdown mode. So I see you where you are. I can hear the yeah. noise behind you. What, what is it like in Florida lately? It certainly doesn't feel like lockdown mode. We're on Clematis Street in West Palm Beach, which is a really popular area for bars and restaurants. And you can see this restaurant here behind me is, is pretty full. They're at 50 percent capacity. That's what's allowed in the county. Uh, but inside, the bar is full and a lot of the tables are full. We've spoken to the restaurants here. They say they have a pretty regular crowd coming through. And I've seen live music out at a lot of the restaurants here in town. I've seen uh, the bars full inside the actual restaurants, not a single seat open. So it doesn't feel like a pandemic is actually surging in this state. But also, Sanjay, besides the restaurants, Disney World has opened. They opened on July 11th, but now they've expanded Epcot and, uh, and Hollywood Studios just opened yesterday. Epcot debuted a food and wine festival yesterday, and Hollywood Studios is booked solid for the next eight days. And by the way, Palm Beach County starting tonight in just a few hours. Because it's so dangerous, they think, they're going to start closing restaurants here, including these, from 11 p.m. to 5 a.m., because they think that they're turning into club-like settings and sort of breeding grounds uh, for the virus, Anderson. Mm. Randy, thanks very much. Now, California, which until recently was seen as a success story when I spoke with San Francisco Mayor London Breed last night, she talked about the frustration of reversing steps to reopen. 
sometimes the very, sometimes the very next day after announcing them in, in the Los Angeles area, where CNN Sarah Seidner is, conditions are especially troubling. She joins us now. So you're at Dodger Stadium. It's been turned into one of the largest testing sites in California. W- what is the latest on testing and contact tracing in California? Look, Anderson, they can test up to 6,000 people a day here, and it has been full all day long. But at 5 o'clock, that cuts off here local time. But let me give you an idea of the numbers across California and how dire it is. The 14-day average right now is 8,000, more than 8,000 positive cases per day. This is the first time since the pandemic that we have broken 8,000 cases plus per day on average. Uh, And so there is a dire problem here. At the same time, the governor had said, look, we're going to get 10,000 contact tracers uh, in place by July 1st. That was the goal. Now we're hearing from public health officials. But even with that, there is no way to deal with this onslaught. There is no way to really be able to trace all of these people when you take into account that more than 8,000 people per day are actually contracting the virus. And then you have to try to call them and then try to figure out all of the different people who they've come in contact with and warn them about it. So this is turning into an extremely difficult situation here. All this to be said, that we're now hearing from the public health director here in Los Angeles, that there could actually be another absolute shutdown here, not just of businesses, not just a few businesses, but a complete shutdown, just like we had to deal with at the very beginning of this. Anderson? You you know, Sarah, if anybody knows anything about California, what they hear is that Governor Newsom did act pretty quickly in mid-March, shutting down the state. And in fact, mayors in some of the major cities were starting to shut down even before the state did. So the narrative was that California seemed to be doing everything right so what, what happened here? What, what do you think caused this surge? So we've talked to health experts and, and they have basically said, look, if you look back to Memorial Day, uh, people apparently just went hog wild, uh, not wearing the masks. They must have gotten together uh, with one another, not uh, self-distancing, because what they saw in the couple of to three weeks after Memorial Day is this major surge. What did that make them do? They said, okay, on July 4th, we are going to have to close down some of the beaches in the highly affected areas. Uh, But in other areas like San Diego County, they saw people flocking to the beaches and not doing the social distancing. So they really think this is an issue of, of people just having fatigue and deciding that, you know what, we're fine. We also know there are some statistics behind that uh, here in Los Angeles County uh, that people between the ages of 18 and 40 years old were responsible for about 50 percent or more of the new positive coronavirus cases. So it tells you that younger people are getting this more often and they link that likely to gatherings uh, and not taking all the precautions that they've been asked to take. Uh, There is certainly fatigue here, but there are a lot of people that are so incredibly frustrated and afraid uh, for the economy and for the health of the state. Mm. Sir Seidner, sir, thanks very much. Now, Hong Kong, which is dealing with another outbreak, but the response is much different than in the U.S. Will Ripley is there for us tonight. So, Will, what is the latest in Hong Kong? I know they're experiencing, what, their third wave? Well, it's interesting. It's all relative, isn't it? I'm listening to, you know, the previous reporters talking about thousands of cases per day. Hong Kong had its record high number of new cases just yesterday, 67 cases. That was the record high for all of this pandemic. This is a city that shut down its borders early. They test everybody at the airport and they pretty much thought they had blocked all the cases from coming in. And, and up until two weeks ago, there were zero cases of community transmission. But now you see the chart just darting up there. 355 cases detected just in the last two weeks. And, you know, more than half of those are being spread inside the city. And that's very concerning for infectious disease specialists I've been speaking with who say that we might be dealing with a mutated virus that could possibly be more contagious. And when you have a densely populated city of 7 million people, uh, you know, it could spread very quickly. But to think that the number of cases is still below 1,700 and just 10 deaths, two of which died, you know, within the last 24 hours or so. Uh, it's certainly Hong Kong is in a good place, but they're worried they could get to a bad place if they don't take very strong measures quickly. And, and will will authorities be able to to contact trace and, and isolate and figure out where these new infected patients are coming from? 
They have been able to identify clusters, Sanjay, bars and restaurants, big ones, people taking off their masks and having close conversations in bars. So they've shut down the bars. Restaurants can no longer serve uh, dinner during the dinner hours, only takeaway. They closed Hong Kong Disneyland. They've closed schools. They've closed gyms. Uh, they also identified clusters in senior care centers and amongst taxi drivers. And in fact, today they're offering free COVID-19 testing for taxi drivers. But there is still a large number of cases, fewer than half, uh, but still significant enough that they can't trace. And that has uh, them very worried that there are people walking around asymptomatic, you know, spreading the virus. And, and Will, you said so when somebody flies into Hong Kong or comes to Hong Kong, they get they get uh, temperature taken or they actually get tested? They get tested at the airport. So when I flew back here from Japan, I, I had to wait about uh, six hours at the airport to get a COVID test. And then I had to spend the night at a hotel uh, to wait for my results. I wasn't allowed to leave my room. So that's the case for every incoming traveler with the exception of flight crew and diplomats who also have to be tested, but they don't have to go through a mandatory 14 day quarantine. I had to stay inside my house and not leave for 14 days. I even had an electronic wristband to monitor my movements. There are even some countries now like Pakistan, for example, where people have to take Take a COVID test before they can even get on board the flight. So they, they feel like they've essentially shut down the borders and stopped the, the, you know, the imported cases. But it's these community cases that really have Hong Kong concern. And so the city has imposed basically the most restrictive lockdown measures to date in this pandemic. And we're still talking about fewer than 100 cases per day here. Uh, it's amazing the difference in uh, how it's being dealt with yeah. uh, and the numbers. Certainly, Will Ripley, thanks very much. Coming up next, former CDC Director Tom Frieden on what to do about schools, on containing this new surge, on what's happening to the proud agency that he once ran and more. And later, two pioneers on the frontier of vaccine t testing, not as researchers, as recipients, including the second person ever to roll up his sleeve for a promising new vaccine candidate. After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned. At the very moment, this country is sliding back into the grip of the coronavirus. The new school year is approaching. So this week saw school systems, large and small, reconsider plans for bringing some or even any kids back into the classroom. We also saw the president push repeatedly for sending every child back to school, but haven't heard any specifics from him or his task force members about the risk. In addition to that, the administration is now tangled in controversy over its move to take responsibility for gathering and keeping data on the out of the outbreak uh, away from the CDC. So there's lots to talk about with Dr. Tom Frieden, who served as CDC director during the Obama administration. Dr. Frieden, I appreciate you being with us. Um, so Dr. Fauci spoke just before we came on air, and I want to play something that he said about reopening schools. You could be in a part of the country, a county, a city, a state, in which the level of virus infection, the dynamics is so low, you could send kids back to school without any modification or any worry. But there are also some areas when you look in the dynamics of the infection are so intense, you have to say, wait a minute, let me think about it. Do I have to close the school for now? Or can I go back? But in order to be safe, do I need to do it in a modified way? alternate days, morning, afternoon, or whatever, because paramount to drive it is the safety and the health of the children as well as the safety and health of the teachers. We also heard from White House Press Secretary Kelly McEnany today who said that, quote, science is on our side here. We encourage localities and states to just simply follow the science, open our schools. I mean, is science on the side of just opening the schools? We want to get our kids back to school. It's really important. It's important not just for learning. It's important for health, for society, for mental health. It's important also uh, for all of us to be able to get back to our work. And that's why it's so important that we work together to get the virus under control. If you're in a place like Phoenix, where the virus is exploding right now, it's going to be difficult, if not impossible, to open schools. If we do the right thing now, in the summer, then yes, our kids can get back to school in the fall and we can get back to work and our economy can be growing again and we can save tens of thousands of lives. But we can't just wish it away. The virus isn't going to stop until we stop it. The US is now a laggard. The virus is out of control. Mm. We're talking about 
60,000 plus diagnosed infections, and many times that number total infections every day. As your reporter just said, 67 cases in Hong Kong, and they're shutting the city. So we have to handle it differently. But all of us have a role to play. We can do this. We can stop the virus, but it's not going to stop on its own. Uh, Dr. Frieden, first of all, thank you for being here. Thank you for doing this. I, I do wonder, uh, how do you think this would play out if President Trump has his way and school districts simply open and children go back to school, regardless of what the situation is like in the area? And as you're thinking about that, I, I, I do want to show what happened in Israel as well, this, this graph that uh, what happened when schools started to reopen in Israel. Uh, you see there May 17th and look at the trajectory uh, in the days afterward. But what, what happens if we just open up schools, Dr. Frieden? Well, I can tell you with 100% certainty that if you open schools in communities where you have a lot of COVID spreading, you're going to have to slam them shut again. Look at what happened in Arizona, Texas, Georgia, South Carolina, Florida. You open too soon, it's one step forward and many steps backward. We're now having this enormous reservoir of viral infections. Hundreds of thousands of people, actually millions of Americans today are walking around infectious with COVID. We've got to cool it down and we can do this. There are some things that all of us can do with the three W's. Wear a mask correctly. Mask up America. Wash your hands or use sanitizer and watch your distance. Those inside crowded spaces, that's what COVID likes. We're going to have to close bars and restaurants in most of the country, or this is not going to stop. So there's something that all of us can do. And then government needs to do a better job testing. It's just impossible to have a useful program if it takes a week for a test to come back. You've got to have it within a day or two at the most. It doesn't matter if we do a million or a billion tests if we're not getting them back quickly enough to make sure that people can get isolated quickly and contacts can get warned so they can protect themselves and their family. I know that you're saying that, you know, these communities uh, where, where the virus is spreading are going to be treated differently than other communities. But I wonder if you can be more specific. So I'm talking to a lot of administrators around the country of school districts. They're still confused by this. Many of them are saying they're not going to go back to school in the fall. They're going to extend remote learning. You know, in New York, where you are, uh, New York Governor Cuomo has set a benchmark. And he says that you got to be in phase four of reopening. You have a, have a positivity rate of 5% or less before you send kids back to school. What if you're a parent right now thinking, am I going to send my kid back to school maybe in the next month? Because some start in the next month. What should they be looking for in their community as too much spread? Well, first off, I think just as open and close of the economy, we have to think of it more of a dimmer dial than an on off switch. It's not so straightforward because you have school districts deciding to ease into the year carefully so they don't have to slam shut. In terms of there's no one magic number, but what Governor Cuomo has done matches exactly with the guidance that, that we've provided and others as well, that if you're at a state where you've got 10% positivity or above, it's just extremely unlikely you're going to be able to reopen. If you're at less than 5%, if you do careful things in the school, that means protecting the vulnerable people. That means re-engineering some of it so you don't have so many kids connected. That means thinking about pods or cohorts so you have groups morning afternoon or one week on one week off thinking about distance learning for some of the older kids high school kids who can do that for much or even most of their time if needed thinking about teachers who may have an underlying health condition or be older they may need to teleschool as well so this is not an easy thing if you charge right in you're going to have to slam right shut, exactly as happened in states throughout the South. Dr. Friedman, you mentioned testing. We're still seeing major issues with testing across the U.S. I mean, one of the biggest issues, the lag time on getting test results back. Some people are waiting a week and in some cases more than two weeks just to get a test back. And obviously people can't find out whether they have the virus within a day. Does it even matter how many get tested? I mean, Bill Gates was on our program a couple of months ago saying, you know, that essentially those are phony tests if you don't get the results back you know, until a week later. Absolutely. Uh, in a sense, they shouldn't even count as tests. What we need to do is look at more meaningful measurements. We need to make risk transparent so that everyone in this country could type their 
zip code in and find out how much COVID is spreading in my community and what is my community, what is my government doing to stop it? What's my risk and what's the response? And then we could all work together. There's a lot of things that need to be done that are not getting done. Offering people who are infected but don't need hospitalization a safe place to stay so they don't infect the people around them. Supporting people who are on quarantine so they don't go out and infect others when they feel well but are infectious. There is so much we need to do, but we can do it. Really, it's never too late to do a lot better than we're doing now. Right now, we're failing in our response and the virus has the upper hand. But if we do better, our kids can go to school, we can go back to work, our economy can recover, and we'll save tens of thousands of lives. And that's not just guessing, that's what's happening in parts of the US and at Resolve, we work Mm. in countries in Africa and Asia that are doing this. It's possible and we can do it too. Can can I just follow up on testing though, Dr. Frieden? I mean, it's ridiculous at this point. I mean, people can't get tested. As Anderson said, it takes too long. What's the deal? Why why is this happening? I talk to people in different countries around the world. They can get point of care testing. It is rapid. It is accurate. Is this a technology failure? Why don't we have the kind of testing that we need? They say maybe 20 million tests a day should be getting performed. What gives here? Well, in fairness, testing has gotten better, but the focus was on numbers instead of quality. And we need to massively scale up rapid turnaround tests. There are some new tests coming, antigen tests that will be screening tests. If they're positive, they're right. If they're negative, you need to check with a PCR test for the virus, not antibody tests, but antigen, the actual Mm -hmm. virus, as you know, Sanjay. And I think with that, we'll have some progress, but what gets measured gets managed. We've been measuring the number of tests, not the number of tests with results reported within 24 or 48 hours. That's what we need to start measuring. When we measure that, people will start working to that. And we do need the private sector, the commercial sector, academic medical centers, all doing this because it's going to take a lot of tests. And remember, it's not gonna be one thing that's gonna get us out of this mess, not restricting travel, not staying home, not wearing masks, not testing, not contact tracing. It's a comprehensive response. The three W's, wear a mask, wash your hands, Mm -hmm. watch your distance, and boxing the virus in with strategic testing, effective isolation, rapid contact tracing, and supportive quarantine. We do all of these things comprehensively. We use data to iteratively improve our response, and we can see progress. We can get our society back. We can get to the new normal. It's not gonna be back to normal, but it'll be a new normal that we can go on with our lives. I've been really stunned by the muzzling or the, the kneecapping of the CDC, uh, either with the you know, uh, uh, silent uh, uh, you know, going along of its director or you know, uh, under pressure. I mean, you along with three others who oversaw the CDC wrote an op-ed this week. It was titled, We Ran the CDC, No President Ever Politicized Its Science the Way Trump Has. Um, can you just talk about that? Because it, it seemed, we had Redfield on the program last week and, you know, he, he denied that they have uh, silenced themselves at times in order for political reasons or under pressure from the White House. But it's clear there have been a number of incidents where they've done that. What I would hope to see is a subject matter expert from the CDC, and there are many of them who have spent 10, 20, 30 years working on respiratory viruses like this, briefing the American people many times a week. If we did that, we'd be on the same page. Take the issue of masks. Months ago, when we were first learning about COVID, we didn't recommend masks because we didn't understand that it acts completely differently than most other infectious diseases. If you look at SARS, its close cousin, or MERS, or tuberculosis, they get more infectious the sicker you get. And the most infectious people are the people who are in the intensive care unit. Turns out with COVID, it's the exact opposite. They're most infectious early on, before they get very sick, even before they get sick at all. And then after a few days of illness, they're much less infectious. That means that, first off, there's asymptomatic transmission. Second, everyone should wear a mask when they're within six feet of others. Third, contact tracing has to be done really fast because if you get there a week later, it's too late. They're no longer infectious and the contacts who have become ill and infectious have already infected others. So there's a lot we have to do to get our response into a much better shape. And 
hearing regularly from the CDC and holding every state and community accountable for how they're doing with mask wearing, with distancing, with implementing good programs to support patients and warn contacts. If we do that, we can get our economy back, we can get our schools reopened, and we'll be saving tens of thousands of lives. Anderson and Sanjay, you know, in the 15 minutes we've been speaking, more than a thousand Americans have gotten infected with COVID and five have died. We are just a total global outlier here and laggard, and yet we can do it. We can work together. It's never too late to do better. Let me ask you really quick in a minute that we have left, Dr. Frieden. Uh, there was this order that came down this week that's now forcing hospitals to send their data directly to HHS instead of going to the CDC, where the world's best epidemiologists work. You said this week uh, there's, that's no way to run a pandemic. So what, what about this concerns you? My concern is that the information is going to get scrubbed and we're not going to get it unedited as we used to. Well, let's see how it turns out. I think it's a mistake. The National Healthcare Safety Network, which is the network that was used before, has been used for over a decade. It works well. We need to strengthen public health, not subvert it and uh, undermine it. But let's see what comes out. The key thing is to focus on getting in this together. Really, there's only one enemy. The enemy is the virus. And the more we are divided, the more the virus can conquer. Dr. Frieden, we appreciate your time uh, and you. all you're doing. Thanks very much. Coming up next, Thank you. two people who did something that most people might think twice about. They volunteered to try a new vaccine candidate before anyone knew if it would work or even be safe in humans. We'll talk to them. And later, uh, Sanjay and I will show you uh, how to have a safe, socially distanced summer barbecue. Sanjay, is this a video you put together? Yeah, yeah. Excellent. You're, you're going to be invited to the barbecue. barbecue. Yes. <laughs> At the very moment, this country is sliding back into the grip of the coronavirus. The new school year is approaching. So this week saw school systems, large and small, reconsider plans for bringing some or even any kids back into the classroom. We also saw the president push repeatedly for sending every child back to school, but haven't heard any specifics from him or his task force members about the risk. In addition to that, the administration is now tangled in controversy over its move to take responsibility for gathering and keeping data on the out, of the outbreak uh, away from the CDC. So there's lots to talk about with Dr. Tom Frieden, who served as CDC director during the Obama administration. Dr. Frieden, I appreciate you being with us. Um, so Dr. Fauci spoke just before we came on air, and I want to play something that he said about reopening schools. You could be in a part of the country, a county, a city, a state, in which the level of virus infection, the dynamics, is so low, you could send kids back to school without any modification or any worry. But there are also some areas when you look in the dynamics of the infection are so intense, you have to say, wait a minute, let me think about it. Do I have to close the school for now or can I go back? But in order to be safe, do I need to do it in a modified way? Alternate days, morning, afternoon, however, because paramount to drive it is the safety and the health of the children as well as the safety and health of the teachers. We also heard from White House Press Secretary Kelly McEnany today, who said that, quote, science is on our side here. We encourage localities and states to just simply follow the science, open our schools. I mean, is science on the side of just opening the schools? We want to get our kids back to school. It's really important. It's important not just for learning. It's important for health, for society, for mental health. It's important also uh, for all of us to be able to get back to our work. And that's why it's so important that we work together to get the virus under control. If you're in a place like Phoenix, where the virus is exploding right now, it's going to be difficult, if not impossible, to open schools. If we do the right thing now, in the summer, then yes, our kids can get back to school in the fall and we can get back to work and our economy can be growing again and we can save tens of thousands of lives. But we can't just wish it away. The virus isn't going to stop until we stop it. The US is now a laggard. The virus is out of control. Mm. We're talking about 
60,000 plus diagnosed infections, and many times that number total infections every day. As your reporter just said, 67 cases in Hong Kong, and they're shutting the city. So we have to handle it differently. But all of us have a role to play. We can do this. We can stop the virus, but it's not going to stop on its own. Uh, Dr. Frieden, first of all, thank you for being here. Thank you for doing this. I, I do wonder, uh, how do you think this would play out if President Trump has his way and school districts simply open and children go back to school, regardless of what the situation is like in the area? And as you're thinking about that, I, I, I do want to show what happened in Israel as well, this, this graph that uh, what happened when schools started to reopen in Israel. Uh, you see there May 17th and look at the trajectory uh, in the days afterward. But what, what happens if we just open up schools, Dr. Frieden? Well, I can tell you with 100% certainty that if you open schools in communities where you have a lot of COVID spreading, you're going to have to slam them shut again. Look at what happened in Arizona, Texas, Georgia, South Carolina, Florida. You open too soon, it's one step forward and many steps backward. We're now having this enormous reservoir of viral infections. Hundreds of thousands of people, actually millions of Americans today are walking around infectious with COVID. We've got to cool it down and we can do this. There are some things that all of us can do with the three W's. Wear a mask correctly. Mask up America. Wash your hands or use sanitizer and watch your distance. Those inside crowded spaces, that's what COVID likes. We're going to have to close bars and restaurants in most of the country, or this is not going to stop. So there's something that all of us can do. And then government needs to do a better job testing. It's just impossible to have a useful program if it takes a week for a test to come back. You've got to have it within a day or two at the most. It doesn't matter if we do a million or a billion tests if we're not getting them back quickly enough to make sure that people can get isolated quickly and contacts can get warned so they can protect themselves and their family. I know that you're saying that, you know, these communities uh, where, where the virus is spreading are going to be treated differently than other communities. But I wonder if you can be more specific, because I'm talking to a lot of administrators around the country of school districts. They're still confused by this. Many of them are saying they're not going to go back to school in the fall. They're going to extend remote learning. You know, in New York, where you are, uh, New York Governor Cuomo has set a benchmark he says that you got to be in phase four of reopening. You have a, have a positivity rate of 5% or less before you send kids back to school. What If you're a parent right now thinking, am I going to send my kid back to school, maybe in the next month, because some start in the next month, what should they be looking for in their community as too much spread? Well, first off, I think just as open and close of the economy, we have to think of it more of a dimmer dial than an on-off switch. It's not so straightforward because you have school districts deciding to ease into the year carefully so they don't have to slam shut. In terms of there's no one magic number, but what Governor Cuomo has done matches exactly with the guidance that, that we've provided and others as well, that if you're at a state where you've got 10% positivity or above, it's just extremely unlikely you're gonna be able to reopen. If you're at less than 5%, if you do careful things in the school, that means protecting the vulnerable people. That means re-engineering some of it so you don't have so many kids connected. That means thinking about pods or cohorts so you have groups morning, afternoon, or one week on, one week off. Thinking about distance learning for some of the older kids, high school kids who can do that for much or even most of their time if needed. Thinking about teachers who may have an underlying health condition or be older, they may need to teleschool as well. So this is not an easy thing. If you charge right in, you're gonna have to slam right shut, exactly as happened in states throughout the South. Dr. Friedman, you mentioned testing. We're still seeing major issues with testing across the US. I mean, one of the biggest issues, the lag time on getting test results back. Some people are waiting a week, and in some cases more than two weeks, just to get a test back. And if, obviously if people can't find out whether they have the virus within a day, does it even matter how many get tested? I mean, Bill Gates was on our program a couple months ago saying you know, that essentially those are phony tests if you don't get the results back you know, until a week later. Absolutely. Uh, in a sense, they shouldn't even count as tests. What we need to do is look at more meaningful measurements. We need to make risk transparent so that everyone in this country could type their 
zip code in and find out how much COVID is spreading in my community and what is my community, what is my government doing to stop it? What's my risk and what's the response? And then we could all work together. There's a lot of things that need to be done that are not getting done. Offering people who are infected but don't need hospitalization a safe place to stay so they don't infect the people around them. Supporting people who are on quarantine so they don't go out and infect others when they feel well but are infectious. There is so much we need to do, but we can do it. Really, it's never too late to do a lot better than we're doing now. Right now, we're failing in our response and the virus has the upper hand. But if we do better, our kids can go to school, we can go back to work, our economy can recover, and we'll save tens of thousands of lives. And that's not just guessing, that's what's happening in parts of the US and at Resolve, we work Mm -hmm. in countries in Africa and Asia that are doing this. It's possible and we can do it too. Can can I just follow up on testing though, Dr. Frieden? I mean, it's ridiculous at this point. I mean, people can't get tested. As Anderson said, it takes too long. What's the deal? Why why is this happening? I talk to people in different countries around the world. They can get point of care testing. It is rapid, it is accurate. Is this a technology failure? Why don't we have the kind of testing that we need? They say maybe 20 million tests a day should be getting performed. What gives here? Well, in fairness, testing has gotten better, but the focus was on numbers instead of quality. And we need to massively scale up rapid turnaround tests. There are some new tests coming, antigen tests that will be screening tests. If they're positive, they're right. If they're negative, you need to check with a PCR test for the virus, not antibody tests, but antigen, the actual Mm -hmm. virus, as you know, Sanjay. And I think with that, we'll have some progress, but what gets measured gets managed. We've been measuring the number of tests, not the number of tests with results reported within 24 or 48 hours. That's what we need to start measuring. When we measure that, people will start working to that. And we do need the private sector, the commercial sector, academic medical centers all doing this because it's going to take a lot of tests. And remember, it's not gonna be one thing that's gonna get us out of this mess, not restricting travel, not staying home, not wearing masks, not testing, not contact tracing. It's a comprehensive response. The three W's, wear a mask, wash your hands, Mm -hmm. watch your distance, and boxing the virus in with strategic testing, effective isolation, rapid contact tracing, and supportive quarantine. We do all of these things comprehensively. We use data to iteratively improve our response, and we can see progress. We can get our society back. We can get to the new normal. It's not gonna be back to normal, but it'll be a new normal that we can go on with our lives. I've been really stunned by the muzzling or the, the kneecapping of the CDC, uh, either with the you know, uh, uh, silent uh, uh, you know, going along of its director or you know, uh, uh, under pressure. I mean, you, along with three others who oversaw the CDC, wrote an op-ed this week. It was titled, We Ran the CDC, No President Ever Politicized Its Science the Way Trump Has. Um, can you just talk about that? Because it, it seemed, we had Redfield on the program last week, and, you know, he, he denied that they have uh, silenced themselves at times in order for political reasons or under pressure from the White House. But it's clear there have been a number of incidents where they've done that. What I would hope to see is a subject matter expert from the CDC, and there are many of them who have spent 10, 20, 30 years working on respiratory viruses like this, briefing the American people many times a week. If we did that, we'd be on the same page. Take the issue of masks. Months ago, when we were first learning about COVID, we didn't recommend masks because we didn't understand that it acts completely differently than most other infectious diseases. If you look at SARS, its close cousin, or MERS, or tuberculosis, they get more infectious the sicker you get. And the most infectious people are the people who are in the intensive care unit. Turns out with COVID, it's the exact opposite. They're most infectious early on, before they get very sick, even before they get sick at all. And then after a few days of illness, they're much less infectious. That means that First off, there's asymptomatic transmission. Second, everyone should wear a mask when they're within six feet of others. Third, contact tracing has to be done really fast because if you get there a week later, it's too late. They're no longer infectious and the contacts who have become ill and infectious have already infected others. So there's a lot we have to do to get our response into a much better shape. And hearing regularly from the CDC 
and holding every state and community accountable for how they're doing with mask wearing, with distancing, with implementing good programs to support patients and warn contacts. If we do that, we can get our economy back, we can get our schools reopened, and we'll be saving tens of thousands of lives. Anderson and Sanjay, you know, in the 15 minutes we've been speaking, more than a thousand Americans have gotten infected with COVID and five have died. We are just a total global outlier here and laggard, and yet we can do it. We can work together. It's never too late to do better. Let me ask you really quick in a minute that we have left, Dr. Frieden. Uh, there was this order that came down this week that's now forcing hospitals to send their data directly to HHS instead of going to the CDC, where the world's best epidemiologists work. You said this week uh, there's, that's no way to run a pandemic. So what, what about this concerns you? My concern is that the information is going to get scrubbed and we're not going to get it unedited as we used to. Well, let's see how it turns out. I think it's a mistake. The National Healthcare Safety Network, which is the network that was used before, has been used for over a decade. It works well. We need to strengthen public health, not subvert it and uh, undermine it. But let's see what comes out. The key thing is to focus on getting in this together. Really, there's only one enemy. The enemy is the virus. And the more we are divided, the more the virus can conquer. Dr. Frieden, we appreciate your time uh, and you. all you're doing. Thanks very much. Coming up next, Thank you. two people who did something that most people might think twice about. They volunteered to try a new vaccine candidate before anyone knew if it would work or even be safe in humans. We'll talk to them. And later, uh, Sanjay and I will show you uh, how to have a safe, socially distanced summer barbecue. Sanjay, is this a video you put together? Yeah, yeah. Excellent. You're, you're going to be invited to the barbecue. barbecue. Yes. <laughs> got the new numbers from Johns Hopkins and a new daily high, 68,428 new virus cases in 24 hours. Having spent so much time tonight in what has been a pretty rough week, it's worth noting there were also headlines that give hope. Johnson & Johnson announced today it plans to begin human trials next week and is in discussions with the National Institutes of Health to begin late-stage trials two months from now ahead of schedule. And this says Moderna has reported that its vaccine developed in conjunction with the NIH and the first to be tested in humans is now moving to later stage trials. That's going to happen later this month after a, quote, robust immune response in all 45 participants in that early stage trial. And we're happy tonight to be joined by two of those participants in the Moderna phase one study, Neil Browning and Ian Hayden. Welcome. Yeah, thanks so much for being with us. Ian, as Dr. Fauci said in an interview late today that the antibodies that you guys now have in your bodies are, quote, gold standard, the gold standard of antibodies. Uh, he predicted that this vaccine will likely be successful. What's it like to hear that? You know, it's encouraging news, obviously. And, you know, it's a little strange to be the subject of that data, but, you know, it's what we've all been hoping to hear. Uh, you know, it's still preliminary, though. There's many phases still to go. And Neil, I mean, have you had a chance to kind of wrap your head around how important this study is, just the enormity of the contribution that, you, that you're making? At the time, it was definitely not something that came to the forefront of my mind, but now it's, it's really big news, it's great news, and it really helps build on the initial report that was released back in May with just eight test subjects. So we finally got to look at some of this data, guys, that was published, as you know, yesterday. I'm curious about it because I looked at the side effect sort of section of the, the paper, and Ian, the last time we talked to you, uh, you said that you had some significant side effects after your second, I believe, injection. Now, you were receiving the highest dose. Uh, there's, there's a 25 microgram, 100 microgram, and 250. You were getting the highest dose. How are you doing now? If you can tell us a little bit more about what those side effects were and how you've been doing since then. Yeah, I'll start by saying I'm doing great now. And really, for almost all of this trial, I've been in, in normal health, feeling fine. There was about a 24-hour period there where I was one of the unlucky ones, maybe one of the most unlucky ones. Uh, I ended up having some severe side effects. They lasted about a day, um, and those were things like a high fever, uh, over 103, fatigue, muscle ache, nausea, things like that. I ended up going to urgent care as this was happening so that the doctors could keep an eye on me and run some tests. Uh, but like I said, after about a day, those tapered away. And aside from that brief episode, I really had no issues whatsoever. I mean, the reason this is important, obviously, is that people in the trial are all healthy between the ages of 18 and 55. 
We've got to see what if these side effects are a larger concern as more and more people uh, start to get this vaccine. Did it surprise you, Ian, to learn that you weren't the only one to have some of these side effects? It did. And, you know, in a very small sense, it's somewhat comforting to know that I wasn't totally alone in this. Um, there may have been two other people in the high dose group who had something like what I went through. Um, and as a result of, of that information, that high dose is no longer going to be tested. And, and Neil, what's next as far as this study goes? So I went back in on the 7th of July and had a blood draw, and I have three more coming each three months apart. Those are going to be sent off to a lab and analyzed, and the idea there is to track how long those valuable antibodies are lasting in our bloodstream. I, and I understand that, uh, you know, uh, Moderna has asked you guys if you would donate some of your white blood cells for them to study further. I guess, is, is that what they're specifically looking for? There, there was a study that recently came out saying antibody sort of concentrations may start to wane and people were infected around, you know, 30 days or so. Is that what they're sort of looking for with you guys as well, Ian? It seems to be the case, yeah. Sanjay, as, as you know, the antibody response is one component of the immune system, but the, the T-cell-mediated component of immunity can protect against viruses too. And so both of those things are being monitored in patients like us. Yeah, so even if you don't have antibodies, if your body can quickly make antibodies because it has the memory from T and B cells, that can be helpful. Ian, I, I heard that your, your, your mom's also going to be a part of this trial. Is that right? Maybe. Um, she just found out she, she was asked to come in for a screening visit for phase three. She lives in California and put her name in the hat like a lot of other people are doing, and she already got a call back. That's amazing. Is that just by, like, did she, obviously she knew you were in it. Did they know she was in it? Total coincidence. Wow. That's, wow. that's cool. Um, that's cool that, that you know, your people in your family are doing it as well. Um, it, it's really extraordinary. Neil, I mean, do you, uh, do you get in, you know, are you informed as, as this goes along or are, do you read about stuff in the paper or, you know, online as, as the news comes out? I'm basically just self-informed. I make sure that I keep really abreast of the situation, but they definitely keep this blind, so much so that even asking some of the people when I go in for blood draws at the Kaiser Research Center, they've said that they have no idea what's going on until it's publicly released either. Hmm. Interesting. So the, the phase three is going to start July 27th. You guys probably knew, knew that. Does that involve you guys at all? I mean, are you going to be, is there anything more for you to do besides getting these blood draws? No, so we're locked into phase one, and the idea there, my understanding is that they're just locking us into phase one because we're going to be monitored as it goes along through that one-year cycle just to see how long the valuable antibodies and our immune, rea immune reaction stays at a legitimate level to hopefully protect someone. Mm. Uh, it's, it's amazing what you're doing, and uh, you know, certainly appreciate it, and thank you thank for talking you. to us about it uh, and uh, for talking all along. We've been talking... A lot of times these uh, last few months, Neil Browning, Ian Hayden, thanks so much. We'll check back with, uh, with both of them uh, later on, see how they are, are doing through the study. A reminder at the bottom of your screen, you'll see our social media scroll shows questions that uh, you are, are asking. You can tweet us your questions with the hashtag CNN Town Hall. You can also leave a comment on the CNN Facebook page. Back now with Sanjay, and I want to bring in one of the veterans of our global town hall, Dr. Lena Wen, former city health commissioner in the Baltimore and an emergency room Physician, Dr. Wen, great to see you as well. Um, uh, let's get right to viewer questions. This one is on vaccines. If you already contracted the virus, this person wants to know, would you still need a vaccine? If yes, then why? Yeah, so based on what we know today, Anderson, the answer is yes. And that's because if you do get COVID-19 and recover from it, you develop antibodies. But we don't know yet how long these antibodies last. And we don't know how much protection you get. Do you get protection for a few months, a year? How complete is that protection? And the hope is that whatever vaccine is developed is a lot more consistent and that it will provide better and longer protection than your own natural immunity alone. And I should say there was these really interesting studies out of China and Italy, you probably know, Lena, uh, basically said the sicker you got, uh, the more antibodies you made. So there may be a correlation there between, you know, how significant your illness was as well. Sanjay, uh, Michelle in Virginia sent in, in this video. Let's take a look. It has been reported that kids are less likely to get sick. How do we know this? What is the evidence? Does this evidence take into account the fact that schools have been closed? 
Is it possible that the school closures have caused or contributed to the decreased number of deaths and illness among students? Sanjay, what about that? Yeah, that's, that's a, it's a good question. Uh, th there is some, some data around this, and let me show you a little bit about what we know, trying to look at you know, how likely are, are young people to get infected, how likely are they to be hospitalized. So see there, children under 17, they make up about 6.5% of all the cases. But if you go to hospitalizations, they're just about 1% of hospitalizations and about 0.3% of all deaths. So it's, the risk is not zero. Uh, it's low, but it's not zero. And I think that that's, that's part of what this discussion is. Also, keep in mind, you know, kids have largely been at home since March. My kids have mostly been at home since middle of March. So that's part of the reason we don't have great data on just how much they're transmitting yet. How, just, uh, what's it like having kids at home that long? I mean, as a parent, I, I you know, thankfully, right now my son is sleeping most of the day, so uh, has no idea what's going on. No, it's, 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 uh, it's challenging. I mean, my girls are preteen and teenage girls. Uh, they, they're going stir crazy. They want to be with their friends. You know, sort of a funny thing I think you guys will appreciate. They, at times, I think they blame me for all this because they see me on TV talking <laughs> about it all the time. So they sort of say it's my fault, you know. So uh -huh. no love there on that. But, you know, they're, they're doing well and, you know, we're blessed. We got, we got a roof over our heads and food and, yeah. and all of that. But, um, so, but it's, it's challenging for them. Sanjay, this is a question from Rachel in Michigan, which reads, a lot of people are still having their graduation parties. They aren't wearing masks and aren't social distancing and are sharing buffet-styled food. They're outside. Should people have graduation parties and should people attend? Yeah, this is a big question. And, uh, you know, one of the most common questions I get with my, my neighbors and, and things like that. I think there are ways to do this safely. Uh, but you, I think you just have to be thoughtful about things in a way that you haven't been before. Take a look at this video that we made. I think we can all agree that outdoor activities have been one of the bright spots uh, during this pandemic. And it is true, you're a lot less likely to get infected if you're outside. The virus has a lot more room to disperse. And when you're outside, one of the things people like to do, barbecues. So if you're thinking about having a barbecue at your house, how do you do this as safely as possible? A couple things. First of all, this isn't going to be some big bash. You're going to have to limit the number of people you invite. And the people that you do invite, think about how they're going to be seated ahead of time. Uh, people can be seated together if they're part of the same household, but they should be at least six feet away from another household who's sitting over here. You also want to think about how are they getting into the house. Hopefully they can just cut around to the backyard, but if they need to go through the house or they need to go into the house for, to go to the bathroom, prop doors open so that people don't touch handles. Also, you know, one of the things I think is important is just let people know that you're taking this seriously. Have hand sanitizer stations around where they can either use hand sanitizer like this or just wash their hands. Now one of the big questions is, how do you handle food? Encourage people to bring their food as much as they can, but of course this is a barbecue, so let me show you what I do. So I am the uh, grill master today, and as the person who's gonna be serving the food, I do wear a mask. People are gonna come up one by one, they're gonna wear a mask as well. That's one way we can cut down on transmission. You have to think about the surfaces that you touch just have to be more mindful now in situations like this. So for example, I have a bowl of chips out here as an example of what not to do. Lots of people sticking their hands in that bowl of chips, that could potentially be a way that the virus is transmitted. Think about what you do, think about the fact that you wanna come in as little contact with other people as possible, but you can still have some fun. If you're sick, if you're having any symptoms at all, obviously you should stay home. Otherwise, it's good to be outside. Good for the physical health, and good for the mental health. I'm such a bad cook. I was hoping you would actually give some advice on like how to actually grill. Uh, <laughs> One just... lonely hamburger there. <laughs> right. no, yeah. Well, hey, that's better than I could do, to be honest. Um, but I mean, it, it's an interesting thing. The, the bowl of chips, obviously, uh, you know, I guess, you know, a package of, you know, chips individually so people can just take a bag of chips as opposed to sort of reaching in and rummaging around. Yeah, setting out individual bowls and things like that. You know, what I, what I sort of realized making that video even, it's just you got to take an extra beat. All the things that you sort of did mindlessly before, you just have to take an extra beat. But I think the situation I described there can be very safe and, and frankly, i got to tell you, necessary for people to actually be able to get together so they're not going stir-crazy uh, all the time. Dr. Wen, this next question is from a viewer in New Hampshire who's asking, gyms are open in my state, yet it's recently come out that the virus can stay in the air for several hours. Are gyms really safe? 
Hmm. So there is increasing evidence now. I think it's pretty clear that you don't just get coronavirus from these large respiratory droplets that you expel when you cough or sneeze, that there are also these aerosols that carry very small amounts of virus, but that can linger up in the air for up to three hours. And not to say that you'll necessarily get infected after three hours, but that that does exist. And that is a mode of transmission just by breathing and um, in speaking, you can expel these aerosols. And so going to the gym is not something that has zero risk. There is risk, but you can reduce that risk. So if, for example, you are near an open window where there's a fan, the wind um, and the circulating air can help to dilute that virus. You can also go during off hours and make sure that you are staying at least six feet, ideally 10 feet away from somebody else who's there. And the other thing too is if you are someone with chronic medical conditions with multiple risk factors and you still really want to go to the gym, then maybe go once a week. Don't go every day. Hmm. Dr. Uh, Dr. Linda in New York State sent in a, a video I just want to uh, play for our viewers. Thank you for having me. My question is, my daughter is a teacher. Will she have to wear a mask all day facing and teaching the children? What is she to do? I hear wearing a mask for long periods of time is not good nor healthy. Dr. Wen, what about that? Yeah, so a lot of school districts are going to be mandating that teachers and students wear masks. I mean, that's following good public health guidance. I know that this is something that's not comfortable and not natural for a lot of people. But at the same time, wearing a mask does not pose health risks. And actually, it's quite the opposite that we know based on studies that if everyone wears masks, that we reduce the risk of transmitting and acquiring COVID-19 by up to five times. So in a way, think about it like a medicine. If there's a pill that can reduce your chance of getting coronavirus by five times, I think we would all want to take that. And so we can think about masks the same way. It protects your daughter. It also protects the other students and teachers and staff and their families too. So Dr. Ward, just to be clear, this notion that that uh, this uh, woman has heard and, and certainly others have you know spread online that wearing a mask for long periods is dangerous for you, for yourself, that's not true. That's not true. There are certain people who should not be wearing masks. So for example, if you are very young, if you're under two years of age, if you're someone who cannot easily take off a mask by yourself, um, those there are certain people who should not be wearing masks. But for everybody else, it is safe to wear a mask. If you wear a disposable mask, throw it away. If you wear a cloth mask, wash it frequently. And it should be very safe and again, protective of everybody around you too. And just to be clear, the under two doesn't need to wear a mask. Is that because of fear of, you know, choking, they can't take the mask off themselves, or is it they are somehow just, it's not going to affect them, the virus? It's the former. So we know that little children can still get coronavirus. As Sanjay mentioned, they probably don't get it as much. They, they're not going to get as sick but they can still get it. The issue, I mean, I have an almost three-year-old and he can't really keep the mask on himself very easily. Um, he'll be fidgeting with his mask a lot. Also, I think for really young kids, for babies, there is a chance that you put the mask on them and then they can't remove it and that could be a hazard in and of itself. But mm. over two should be wearing a mask. All right, Dr. Wen Tom in Ohio sits in this video. Let's take a look. There's been a lot of reporting recently about the resurgence and spread of COVID-19. Most reports focus on Florida, Texas, and Arizona. The common thread with these three states is that they did not follow federal guidance and open too early. California has also experienced the same spike at the same time. By most, if not all reports, California followed federal guidance and opened properly. Is there something we are missing about the recent increase in cases? Dr. Wen? Yeah, this is a really good question. Um, we know that 
anytime you have reopening, that you are going to get a resurgence in the number of cases. That's just the way that this virus works. It's very contagious. And what was keeping it in check was people separating from one another. So the resurgence that we're seeing is not unexpected. It's actually completely predictable. In the case of California, it was much faster, I think, than a lot of us anticipated. But then the thing is, we also don't know the what if, the counterfactual, as in if they didn't follow all the guidance that they actually did, would they have seen a much higher peak, a much faster resurgence? Mm. And I think the answer almost certainly is yes. Interesting. Dr. Wen, really appreciate it as always. When the, uh, when the CNN Global Town Hall continues, ways you can help others during the pandemic. After the break, more from CNN Town Halls and Debates. Stay tuned. And welcome back to our CNN Global Town Hall, Coronavirus Facts and Fears. We hope tonight we've helped with some of your answers to uh, questions about the pandemic. And, you know, uh, we've seen so many of our viewers asking about resources for how they can help. Uh, you can find out by going to CNN.com coronavirus. Find out how to help there. There are also categories to search for where you want to contribute and ways to search for help yourself. You can also go to CNN.com impact. Anderson, Sanjay, thanks a lot. Yeah, Sanjay, as always, thanks so much. We also want to thank our guests, Dr. Tom Frieden, Neil Browning, and Ian Hayden. Also, thanks to those of you who wrote in with your questions, to everyone who joined us. If you didn't get your question answered tonight, conversation continues at CNN.com slash coronavirus answers. News continues right now. And that concludes this episode of CNN Town Halls and Debates, your direct source to the people shaping your world. To make sure you're always a part of the conversation, subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. For even more updates, follow us on Twitter at CNN Podcasts. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.